Outlet Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome along to today's edition of The Profile with me, Justin Briley. And this is the programme, of course, brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine as part of our Faith Explored programming every Saturday afternoon. And if you'd like to get a free sample copy of the latest edition of the magazine, you can find it at premierchristianity.com slash free sample. Well, in this first part of the profile today, I'm really overjoyed to be joined by two men who are both involved in a film coming out this summer. In fact, it's called Summer in the Forest. Randall Wright, the director, and Chris Asprey, who's been involved in the production, are both with me. And, uh, well, we'll be finding out all about it across the course of today's programme. Uh, it's based on uh, looking at the story of L'Arche, which is a community established by Jean Vanier uh, to bring together people with learning and mental and physical disabilities and uh, those who are part of that community with them, able-bodied uh, people but uh, who form a community which, which helps to bring humanity to all involved. We're going to be learning more about the film. Uh, first of all, let's meet the director, Randall and uh, Chris. Uh, great to have you both with me, gentlemen. Thank you, Justin. It's great nice to, to have you. Um, Randall, um, you have been driving this film, obviously. Uh, I don't know how long these things tend to take, but when did you sort of first get the idea for a film looking at the story of uh, L'Arche? Well, qu- quite a long time ago. Um, I was very lucky. I, I met Jean Vanier in St Pancras Station, and um, he was very impressive, rather sort of quiet, but also with a sense of humour. He looked like a sort of um, Jacques Tati come back to life, very sort of <laughs> tall and... Um, very sort of deep, inquiring um, and friendly face. Now, I I was very, very impressed by him. But the thing that made me want to do it was a moment, uh, a moment of truth, really, for me, when I went to L'Arche, London, and there was a, an evening where all the families were invited, um, the families of the people who were being looked after in L'Arche. Mm. Um, and I was, I was very moved because... Uh, I come from a very pretentious world, I should say. I come from the world of, of film and television. And here was a world where no one was pretending. Mm. Um, there was something very precious about that. Um, and I was looking for a subject which challenges the world we're in, mm. a world where we're, we are expected to perform, we're expected to be a success. Yes. Um, but success seems very superficial sometimes. And, mm. of course, people fall short. Jean Vanier... Tell us who he is and what it was that he founded, I, I, I guess, some 50 or so years ago now. Yes, a little bit more than 50 years ago. Um, may I just describe the film? Of because, course. Um, what you've described with L'Arche is a very important, the story of L'Arche. But the idea of the film, which relates to the story of L'Arche, is to um, provide for, for people and a, a cinema film, a very entertaining film. It's a very mm. beautiful film. Um, shot um, as if a, a fiction film. It's widescreen, incredible sound, fully mm. orchestrated. Mm. It's not a worthy documentary at all. Right. Um, but it's the stories told by some of the, the pioneers of L'Arche, mm. including Jean, of how they made their home. Mm. Um, so you asked me to tell you the story of, mm. of Jean. Well, the, the sort of the, the, one of the, there are several parts to that. Um, the one that people usually start with, which I wouldn't choose to start with, but I think they often start with, is the moment he rescued um, these pioneers in 1964. In fact, the film, um, and one of the things that really impressed me, was a lot of those pioneers are still there, more mm. or less in the same houses they were transported to from a lunatic asylum near Paris. When I say pioneers, these are people with intellectual disabilities who as it were, in the previous uh, way of thinking about those people, were a, a great embarrassment. Uh, they, were, they were people who were rejected and marginalised. And put out of sight and mind, essentially. Exactly. So Jean did something uh, which we now might see as sort of fairly common sense, but then was revolutionary. He went into the lunatic asylum, he observed these people, and he realised that the people who were in there included people who didn't need to be there, who would be perfectly happy living 
in an ordinary house mm. and you know in an ordinary in an ordinary community if you like and so he took those people out um and i think a lot of people saw that act as a sort of experiment um but it he proved you know that it was possible and um and then i think the key part of the story that in that act as a as a, a christian um and i think he thought he was doing something very good which he obviously was mm. um but what he discovered was the relationship with these people he'd rescued was mutual and in fact they changed him yes. they helped him they they rescued him as much as he they did rescued and so them the real beginning of the story for me um is really to do with um Jean Vanier's response to the Second mm. World War, mm. to the, se- the sort of sense of liberation, of a sort of victory over over evil yeah. fascism, if you like. Um, but I think Jean, who's such an extraordinarily honest and um, complete sort of person, um, he sensed, uh, in a sense, there hadn't really been a victory. In, 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 in that, it was still an open question as to what it is in our in our natures that leads us to do sort of evil Such things, evil things to each other, and and can we see the humanity in people who are very different to us? In you know exactly, and surface? so by finding the people who were rejected, another category mm. of people. Of, he was there when some of the yeah. um, Jews came back from concentration camps, and and with his mother helped them. But could he? Um, he, he found another category of, of rejected people. And uh, eventually, there was a long journey, um, and I think in 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 encountering encountering them, he then finally had his liberation, yeah. which is a liberation yeah. of, from sort of accepting himself and his vulnerability and human nature. I mean, I don't know if you well. If let's that makes bring sense. in Chris at this Chris, point. Yeah. We will in a moment hear a couple of clips from the film Somewhere in the Forest, which tells the story of. Uh, the Larche community, which began, as you say, in in France, um, now has communities all over the world um, doing the same thing uh, under the same kind of ethos of um, allowing those who have mental and physical disabilities to live in community with people that perhaps might be called carers, um, but who are not in that sense. It's not a sort of client uh, professional relationship, Chris, and you're part of Larche London. Do you want to explain how, how you got involved? Well, how I got involved, yeah, that that's right. In fact, we we don't call uh, people who work at Lash Carers, no. as you as you said, precisely for a reason that that Randall alluded to yeah. earlier, which is that carer in does imply a sort of one way relationship, mm. and in a way, of course, we are looking after people. That is very much part of 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 what it is to be someone with a learning disability. It's that you do need care. But in a way, the the kind of distinctive experience of Larsh is that it wants to provide, I think, the setting for a reversal of that relationship somehow. So that um, although I have the experience of looking after whoever it may be, Patrick, um, in the film, for those who are going to see the film, Patrick, you know, needs help with his bath every morning. And and in that sense, Patrick is a dependent human being. Um, and yet, I for two years lived uh, in a in a room right next to Patrick, um, uh, in the room next door to him, and Patrick became, I would say, something like a friend. I mean, it's it's really um, it's really difficult to talk about friendship. I think in in cases like this, when because I think a lot of the time our conception of friendship is based on an idea of equality, mm. and actually, what's strange about the friendships. Um, that that people with and without disabilities make with each other is that often it's a friendship which crosses inequalities. Mm. And that is the kind of weird and and beautiful thing that I think I discovered there. Okay. So you asked how I got involved. I was actually an academic um, in Paris. So I used to teach... Um, theology and religious studies not dif- di- not that different to Jean Vanier himself <laughs> in that sense uh, perhaps in, in that sense yeah in fact quite a lot of people over the years um, another sort of well known name is Henri Nouwen indeed yes um, who've been intellectuals or mm. involved in university life at some some level have been attracted to L'Arche um, for me I was I'd been teaching for five years um, in Paris I was um 
I was uh, in need of a break. I was granted a sabbatical by the university. And I said, I spoke with the head of department. I said, I'm really keen to spend um, a year at L'Arche. And by this time, I'd actually become friends with um, a L'Arche community about an hour from Paris, the Mm. one that's in the film, the Trolley community, which is the first community. And that was through a colleague at the university who lives opposite one of the houses. And I remember he had he'd invited me back to stay with him and his family one weekend. He's in the philosophy faculty. I was in the theology faculty. And uh, he invited me back to stay with his family. And and when I got there, he said, why don't you go for lunch in one of the houses? Mm. So I said, "Okay, that that sounds interesting. And I remember turning up um, in one of the houses and um, I walked in through the door. Someone said, you know, top of the road. So I walked in through the door and then I, uh, I opened the door and there was no one around except this woman um, who I suppose was probably in her 30s, 40s at the time, called Fanny, I would discover, who was nonverbal. And she was sort of, um, Fanny used to sort of, um, how can I describe, drag her way around the house, really. She didn't Mm. want to be in a wheelchair, but was unable to walk without Mm. support. And she would sit at the door and um, and make these sort of noises when people would walk in, Mm. um, which I suppose were... Fanny's way of welcoming people. Anyway, so I walked in. There was Fanny um, sort of uh, crouching, lying by the door. You weren't and quite sure how to respond I wasn't quite sure how to no. respond. I felt this was my first real contact with someone mm. with a learning disability. Um, uh, and, and anyway, I was invited for lunch and I sat around the table. There must have been about 10 people at table. And because I was the guest that day, people were keen to know what I was who I was, where I came from, and I talked a bit about myself and felt incredibly uncomfortable. (laughs) And then at the end of the meal, um, I had this really strange experience because everyone got up and started doing their tasks and everyone, it became quickly apparent, had their own sort of job in the house. Mm. It was one person's job to clear away. It was another person's job Mm. to wipe the table and so on. So I was standing around like a kind of... Spare part. uh, Spare part. (laughs) And a guy called Olivier, um, who's a a man um, who's been around in that community for more than, well, I don't know, more than 25 years um, now, a man with Down's syndrome and a um, very gentle man with a sense of humour can be quite difficult at times as well, um, I would discover. But anyway, Olivier saw that I was standing around like a spare part and just took me by the arm and said and showed me what to do. And it was really weird because in a way it was a tiny thing but kind of encapsulated the sort of experience that Randall described Jean having. Mm. That I was in that moment taken care of by someone with a learning disability in a very small way but saw that I was the one not knowing what to do Mm. Mm. and needed in a very small way some kind of welcome and looking after. And and that, for me, was the beginning of a, of a, of a friendship with Lash. Let's hear a little from the film. This is just a, a couple of extracts from the film Summer in the Forest. What is it to be a human being? Is it the power? If it's power, then we're going to kill each other. You see, the wise and powerful lead us to ideologies, whereas the weak are in the dirt. They're not seeking power, they're seeking friendship. It's a message for all of us. It's about all of us. Just a little of Jean Vanier and some of the audio from the film, Summer in the Forest. If you want to find out more, summerinthefores.com. It's actually playing in selected cinemas uh, from around the end of June, uh, beginning of July. And uh, in that sense, Randall, what are you hoping that those who go to see it will will come away with? I mean, this isn't a film where you just want to sort of, oh, let's all just feel sorry for a group of people. That's certainly not the kind of thing you want to put across through this film, is it? Uh, oh no! It's um, I, I hope it's enormously entertaining. It's mm. um, it's an opportunity to meet people you wouldn't otherwise perhaps meet, or um, as we find with a lot of people that there's some indirect relationship with um, intellectual disability, 
um, and it it reminds them of of something that they wanted to find out. Um, but no, it's a it's a it's the absolute opposite of a kind of worthy film. It's very empowering and optimistic. Mm. Um, it doesn't shy away from uh, darker stories. Mm. Um, a lot of the stories are of liberation, but they include, um, for example, in the case of an amazing uh, man called Michel Petit, um, who someone, uh, and certainly I, um, ignored initially. He looks, he's very unprepossessing. Um, and um, and yet, he's the most incredible man um, who escaped uh, from an asylum. He broke out. He walked 30 kilometres back home, and then he smashed up his home as a demonstration of how incredibly unhappy he was. Mm. And his family recognised how badly cared for he was. And by extraordinary coincidence, because I think most of the people who had that experience would have been sent back again. Um, there was news that Jean Vanier had established the house um, in, in, in Trolley and he was able to go there. Um, so he he tells this story, um, but he also expresses his philosophy of life. Um, he talks about history. Um, gradually, we enter into, uh, you know, his confidence. And mm. I hope, people's experience of the film is that um they discover um their own humanity in a sense mm. i mean what 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 i think i don't know if it's i don't want to summarize what you said chris but we we everybody experiences this this part of life differently but for me it's it's a sort of encounter with yourself mm. you you have to discover to 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 sort of stop pretending you discover in yourself um a kind of shared vulnerability Mm. Um, and um, there's a sort of it's changing yeah. time scale. I don't know. I I, I grew. I got. Uh, sorry, I'm I'm fine trying to find the word, but I think I started using my intuition a great deal more in relating to people, and I found that um, I developed a lot of a lot more patience because I think I'm an incredibly impatient person. I remember um, reading how yeah. Henri Nouwen, um, for instance, he. he described it i think you know in his memoirs and so on as as a a very humbling thing in in the sense that um all his degrees and intellectual abilities and so on which in a sense he'd based a lot of his self-esteem and identity in up to a point sort of none of that counted really for anything and you were you were just it was just who you were at rock bottom that counted mm -hmm. when you when you were in yeah, that kind that, of a community i mean you know i wasn't as successful an academic as Henri now but nevertheless it was a it, I think quite a shock to the system when I sort of decided that I would join the Larsh community as a, you know, full time, that this mm. was going to be my life, at least for a period of time. Um, yeah, a bit of a drop in status. Mm. And also, I think that um, the reality is that your degrees count for nothing there. What is a measure of success is not that you've uh, written something or published something or, or, or whatever, but actually your ability to relate to people mm. um, in a mature way. And community life uh, puts that to the test in, in all sorts yeah. of ways yeah. um, that I didn't imagine. And I mean, I'm sure it's not all, you know, butterflies and roses. I'm sure there are frustrating and challenging times every day. Yeah, I mean, Jean, Jean Vanier um, sort of often likes to say uh, that community is about celebration. Mm. And uh, I once um, sort of said to him, oh, gosh, that seems a bit of a shortcut, Jean. You know, it, that, that's not the experience I'm having at the <laughs> moment. And and then he went, to, he sort of made his thoughts a little bit more precise. And I've heard him do this on other occasions as well. Celebration is the sort of end of that road of being in community together. So that what we're aiming at is celebration. And mm. actually what we achieve a lot of the time is celebration and I think in the film, there's the the film sort of ends actually on a note of massive celebration. There's a mm. big party, mm. and one of the things that for me was just, I think, transforming um, about being an assistant in a large house for two years was the almost sort of anarchic at times. I probably you probably can't say that, but um, <laughs> uh, it doesn't sound very professional, yeah. but almost anarchic at cel celebratory atmosphere, yes, you know, yes. that we enjoyed each other's company beyond the norms and the laws and the and the, the obligations and tasks and that had to be performed. 
and we were able to tease each other and and there was a genuine affection um and it felt yeah in you, some you, sense you like being part of a family in a sense in a way that you sometimes don't get the opportunity to and i might just jump in here because that's that's the spirit that inspired the film hmm. um chris was an an amazing help to me and someone called mary alex and they were sharing leadership of the house um and i went in as a complete beginner mm. um so I work with an amazing cinematographer called Patrick Duval, and he and I had been in all sorts of straits and you know difficult parts of the world. We we worked for several weeks in Niger, hundreds of miles from anywhere. So we're used to sort of being dumped down somewhere and feeling uncomfortable. Um, but what we started to realise in seeing how open Chris was and others were um, to having a relationship and being patient and noticing. Mm. Um, that we had to drop all our, our our usual filmmaking methods, which are actually to do with telling people what to do. So we couldn't tell anybody what to do. We had to wait um, until things were offered to us by individuals that were um, their story or some explanation of what they felt and then build the film out of that. Yeah. So the film is, um, is very, um, I think, unusual if I'm, dare i say but it, mm. it's very unusual in in a sense in reversing the usual image of disability the things we were talking about earlier that you know a lot of people represent disability as a burden yes um so we all know um when you ever bring up that word that there's there's going to be a problem somewhere someone can't walk easily mm. so it's a practical problem to solve at least and then there's the anger that might be there frustration but what i discovered um personally and, and was so extraordinarily liberating uh, uh, in Trolley um, was that uh, the person who was going through that struggle was uh, was welcomed and secure at home and they had gradually in their life um, discovered themselves in a place mm. and that's in a sense the shape of the film that's yeah. what the film's about yeah. Fantastic stuff. We've only got a few minutes left. Um, and I'd be interested in your commentary, Chris, just as we start to draw things together. This isn't, quote unquote, a Christian film. Um, anyone of any faith or none, I'm sure, will find this engaging and, and helpful. You are a Christian yourself. I, I, I don't understand that there's any kind of particular, you know, you don't have to be a Christian to, to be involved with the community and so on. But but what what did it for you as a Christian sort of tell you what has your experience kind of brought to you about the nature of faith about about christ about you know what happens in community when when this happens um quite hard to put my finger on justin <laughs> i'm i would probably one word really reality so it's 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 the way in which my faith became something real mm. um rather than a theory a set of mm. theories um beliefs abstract beliefs i think that perhaps i and maybe a lot of people today um have um or tend to lead quite a sort of individualistic faith life mm. um and a relationship with god in some sense can be quite comfortable um when it's when it's uh, engaged in individually because because God is very gentle and doesn't doesn't answer back um, <laughs> and doesn't intervene in dramatic ways, except perhaps very exceptionally for some mm. people, and um, and yet somehow the measure of how you are with other people is the measure of the reality of that relationship you mm. have with God. Um, it's a kind of I would say a, a sort of um, a litmus test, if mm. you like, of you know um of of the state of where your faith is and it might be it might be that your faith is 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 thriving it might be that your faith is struggling um what i think living in community did to me was it gave me a real litmus test so that i mm. could actually mm. i could be real about mm. that um i guess you can know all the theology in the world in your head but when it, the rubber hits the road that's Will it actually make any difference to the, who you are as a person and the the life and the relationships you can have? That's right, and uh, thank you. Yeah, and actually, I was my sort of interest was in contemporary Christian doctrine, and mm. I think a lot of um, doctrine, a lot of theology, is actually theology made for intellectually very competent people, mm. and 
only part of someone without a learning disability, only part of me um, is intellectually competent. I'm many other things mm. than just a, a mind. And, um, you know, I'm a body, I'm emotions, I'm uh, made up of all sorts of other things and experiences. And at that point, I found that my theology had very little to say um, and had become quite poor, effectively. Mm. And I think this, for me, was a chance uh, to experience faith in a more whole way, um, perhaps in a way that was more challenging and less, perhaps less obviously Christian, Mm. um, but it it had that merit of actually being real. It's been fascinating to be able to talk to you both. Um, Randall Wright, the director of this new film, Summer in the Forest, and Chris Asprey of uh, Lash London. Thank you very much for joining me on The Profile today. It's been great to have you. Um, And can you just remind us, Randall, of of how people can see the film uh, over the coming month or two? Um, Yes, it's um, released on the 23rd of June at Picture House. It's showing in a number of cities. You can find out where... Um, by logging into uh, online on summerintheforest.com. Um, and then in the future, it'll be available um, at a reasonable price online. Great. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Thanks for coming in to tell us about it and thank all you. the very best as, um, as the film gets released. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to the first half of today's profile with me, Justin Briley. Uh, don't forget that you can find out more about the film. We've been talking about Summer in the Forest, uh, summerintheforest.com for more information. The Profile brought to you in association with Premier Christianity magazine. And if you want to find out more about that, uh, do go to our website as well, premierchristianity.com. Coming up next, the second half of today's programme. The Profile, in association with Christianity magazine, on Premier Christian Radio. Welcome along to the programme. I'm Justin Briley and my guest joining me on the second part of today's profile is Craig Hazen. Craig, thank you for joining me today. So good to be here. It's great to have you. Um, Craig, as you, anyone listening will immediately be able to tell, you're not from around these here parts in the That's UK. That's right. Uh, just, just on a visit. You're uh, a resident of SoCal, South California. That's right. Um, tell us a little bit about what you do there out in California. Uh, for the last 15 years, I've been running a graduate program in Christian apologetics. It's a Master of Arts degree. It's It, it might very well be the biggest one in the world. Uh, and it's really been kind of a center point for people who want to l- learn how to have a reasonable faith and defend their faith mm. against uh, all kinds of opposition. Great stuff. Um, for those who aren't aware of what the word apologetics might mean, can you just give a quick definition of what, what that is? Yeah, it really is a simple idea. Uh, unfortunately, people get it confused with giving apologies, like I'm sorry, but it mm. really is a grand old term meaning to give uh, answers, to give reasons for your beliefs. Mm. It's and that simple. It's that simple. Take us back then before we get up to the present day and what you're doing. Um, did you grow up yourself in a Christian family? You know, I didn't. Uh, we occasionally went to church. I remember going to a church as a, as a child occasionally, and uh, it, it did make a lot of sense to me. And so by the time I got to high school, you know, I was in my, you know, I was 16 or 17 years old. Uh, I, was, I was a bit of a village agnostic, agnostic if not a village atheist. Mm-hmm. And uh and so I'd ask the uh, the believers the hard questions and watch them crumble, and it, it was clear that there wasn't anything to that, and that uh, religious belief was just something you closed your eyes and leapt into and, mm-hmm. and just hoped it was true. Uh, I just wasn't interested in that. Uh, and I was heading towards a you know a university science education, so that seemed like a much more reasonable mm-hmm. place to go. So what changed? What, what happened? So some girl invites me to a church, and you can imagine the attraction right there. You know, some girl invites me to a church. I'm, I'm fine. I'll go, and I, I enter this church, and, uh, and I was clobbered. I really was. I just did not expect what I was going what, to hear. What had been your expectation then of church and Christianity? Well, up to that point? this, this, you know, I don't know what kind of churches your listeners are going to, but this was a big Calvary Chapel in Southern California, the, the mothership of Calvary chapels. <laughs> and on Monday nights, they had a special evangelistic service where this uh, fellow by the name of Greg Laurie, 
who uh, was still pastor of a big church in Southern California and, and a, a global evangelist. You know, he was preaching on a Monday night, and these were always evangelistic services. And there was a guy named Keith Green who was playing the piano that night. Keith Green. Yeah, that's, yeah, a, that's well, a blast from Keith, the past. Keith Green, yeah, that's the name. There. And so I was so impressed with the music. And then this message, I remember he preached on John chapter 4. I remember it to this day. And something grabbed my heart. I, I was just grabbed by this, and I didn't know what it was. Uh, but being a kind of scientifically-minded person, I decided to take the experiment. <laughs> it, was, it was almost too sterile and rational, really. But, uh, in fact, uh, you know, they, they were singing a, some sort of hallelujah uh, yeah, chorus, chorus you know, mm-hmm. as, as they were getting people to, try to stand up and go forward for an altar mm-hmm. call. Mm-hmm. Well, just for drama, you know, this girl, I know she was praying for me. This thing, <laughs> she was going to get a notch on her Bible for sure. <laughs> and I waited till the last hallelujah you know, <laughs> before I... I got up and went forward, and uh, I was dying to just turn around and look at her face, you know. But, but I went up and said some prayer, and uh, then they sent me to a back room, you know, along with the other new believers, and mm. uh, and there were counselors in this back room, and uh, and for each counselor, there was a whole circle of new believers, and they were giving them a pep talk mm. and giving them a Bible mm. and saying they were going to pray for them, and and after about twenty minutes, it was me with all the counselors, <laughs> and I was just peppering them with questions, you know. Uh, <laughs> And God bless them. They, they did their best to answer those questions, uh, but they didn't really have much training. But they didn't leave it there. They gave me book titles and radio programs to listen to and sent mm-hmm. me cassette tapes by Christian <laughs> thinkers. And and over the next, uh, I don't know, days, weeks, months, uh, there was this strange uh, chord uh, developing between my mind and this hard experience that I'd had. Suddenly it dawned on me, oh my goodness, this is actually true. This isn't mm. just some experience. Mm. Mm. And that really set a trajectory for me. That, that, that's, that still obsesses me today, that this yeah. is really true. This is not a figment of my imagination. This is not about leprechauns or unicorns. Uh, this Jesus fellow really was the Son of God and the mm. Savior of humankind. Yeah, fantastic. So at what point then after having had this conversion and starting to put together this emotional tug you'd had with the the case for Christ and, and stuff, um, did, did it start to develop into a calling on your own life in this area? It did. You know, I, and, and, you know, any young Christian who's uh, really passionate about God might think about the the pastorate, you know, becoming mm. a pastor, a Christian leader of some sort. Uh, the Lord tossed me out of that in no uncertain <laughs> terms, and uh, I really just stayed in my academic focus. And 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 although I wanted to go uh, do uh, maybe a theology or religious studies or philosophy because I was just drawn to that through this mm. new Christian experience, I finished an undergraduate degree in, in biology, and I'm really glad I did. Uh, but I did take every philosophy and religious studies course. I could find. But sure. the Lord was developing me for some future ministry. And I've always loved uh, not just science, but the philosophy of science, the history of science, mm. and, and how that interacts or weaves together with religious belief. Sure, sure, absolutely. And were, were there kind of significant people in your life at this point, Christians who were helping you sort of discern what the future might hold, what kind of giftings God had given you in this area? Yeah, there were more people telling me what not to go into. <laughs> you do not. You are no counselor. You know, to stay away from people's psychological problems. You know? <laughs> are, uh, but in terms of evangelism and being mm. passionate about mm. uh, the truth of Christianity and the fact that there's a bedrock of uh, evidence and reason mm. underneath mm. it all, uh, that they they recognized immediately. And there's not a friend I had back then who I still have today who is uh, surprised that in the direction I went. <laughs> These days, obviously, there's been a growth in the amount of skepticism, particularly that you can contact online. Um, That seems to be where atheism sort of congregates, if you like. It's very much an online phenomenon almost, and you you have the key spokespeople. It really is. Um, Back when you were starting out, was that kind of as much of a going concern at that time? What kind of issues were being thrown at you that you were trying to answer? 
Wow, what a good question. It's it's hard to to go back because I was I was, I was so obsessed with my own objections and working yeah, yeah, those through. Yeah, it's yeah. hard to get a real take a real temperature as to yeah. what was going on. But you know, I became a Christian in the uh, late 1970s, and I mean, I remember some of the controversies when I first became a mm. Christian, and and they're they're not controversies. Uh, anymore necessarily. Sure, I mean, sure. the, the, there's still a, a generic form mm. of unbelief that mm. circulates. Uh, but, you know, I don't think anything's changed in this regard. That, that if, if I were to identify the biggest and uh, most uh, pervasive apologetic problem, it's simply this. Unbelievers think that what we're engaged in is blind leaping. Mm. That yeah. we close our eyes and we leap into religion, that's what it's really all about. And so they'll say things like, well, good for you, so glad you have that Jesus thing going, mm-hmm. but I'm more of a scientific person. As though the two are mutually oh, exclusive, yeah. That, that just <laughs> gets to me, you know. And so I, I, I go overboard trying to show how rational Christianity is sometimes, because that is what we're facing. Sure, absolutely. And, and that's kind of obviously where your ministry has developed. So tell us a little bit about um, how you got involved at Biola, which is where you're based out of. Yeah, well, uh, back to college, I finished in biology. Like I said, I took every philosophy and religious studies course I, I could. But I started going to this, this funny little school called Simon Greenleaf University. Mm-hmm. Simon Greenleaf was a Harvard law professor who wrote a wonderful a little book called The Testimony of the Evangelist. And one of my old professors by the name of John Warwick Montgomery started this school, and it was, it was just down the street from me. So I wasn't even serious about doing a degree there, but I went and started taking these uh, graduate-level courses, even though I was still an undergraduate, and, and I loved every second of it. So I got <laughs> some great uh, learning in systematic theology and philosophy of religion and all the apologetics courses that I could possibly mm-hmm, mm-hmm. enjoy. Um. But it was then I decided I'm not going in. I, I thought maybe of becoming a, a scientific researcher or something like that. But I, I decided to shift gears and take my science along with me, but move into religious studies and philosophy. Okay. And so I did a, uh, I did a an MA and a PhD in religious studies at the University of California at Santa Barbara, uh, which 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 is an unusual place mm. to study. I mm. mean, I I, I could mm. tell you know, uh, hours of stories of being <laughs> a a a. Bible reading, Jesus loving <laughs> Christian in this very hostile environment, right. yeah. to, to my yeah. belief, yeah. and and how the Lord worked through that. But but that really set the trajectory for me, and 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 so I, I ended up uh, with a degree, uh, a, a couple of graduate degrees in religious studies. So I got a chance to study all the great world religious traditions mm-hmm. from stem to stern, and and religious studies is quite a flexible banner under which to study. Yeah, and so I got a chance to do everything I love in graduate <laughs> school. Excellent. And so um, graduate school, what did that develop into? Did did it engender a, a passion for doing an academic career? It really did. I, I pictured myself at a secular university, right. you know, doing that thing where as a Christian, you kind of lay low. You know, you, <laughs> you don't do anything particularly Christian until you get tenure and then you can really make a nuisance of yourself for Jesus in all the right ways. You know, <laughs> I think one of my... I, my just recently dear departed colleagues, uh, uh, Dallas Willard from mm. the University of Southern California, who oh, did that more brilliantly than anybody, you mm. know, just was a huge Christian presence on yeah. a secular university campus. It just saw yeah. light in a very dark place. Yeah. Tell, tell me a little bit about the sort of D- Dallas would be a good place to start um, and how his kind of ministry impacted you in, in the course of your life, you know, uh, the, the way that he was obviously bringing a public engagement with Christianity into a, you know, sometimes secular atmosphere. Yeah. You know, uh, Dallas Willard. Dallas oh, Willard, my goodness. Yeah. He's the, uh, uh, boy, uh, he, he, he had a tremendous influence on me and some of my, my dearest colleagues, too. Uh, but it was more the fact that this man, he, he was one of the smartest guys I've ever met, mm-hmm. but probably more Christ-like than anybody I've ever <laughs> met, all at the same time. Mm. How did he, I mean, patience and kindness and soft words and uh but 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 razor sharp intellect but he never used it as as a cutting instrument yeah sure he was just a he just glowed for jesus no matter where he went and and uh the lord's power was with him in dramatic ways he's uh i wrote a book called uh, five sacred crossings mm. and it's got a, a 
a main character. It's a it's a uh, it's a novel, uh-huh, and it's got a uh-huh. main character named Michael Jernigan. And I must say, I'd say seventy to seventy five percent of this character, I had <laughs> Dallas <laughs> Dallas Willard in mind sure. all the time as I wrote this story. So we had a tremendous impact. Yeah, brilliant. Um, and and how did things work out for you as as um, you were? What kind of happened as you tried to press into doing a, a, a secular academic type career? Yeah, the, the Lord had just had other plans. And uh, I wound up back at that funny little school I mentioned earlier, <laughs> Simon Greenleaf University. I was running a graduate program in Christian apologetics. Right. And uh, working my tail off, too, to do it because it was a, it was a struggling school. Mm. It got absorbed by another institution mm-hmm. that wasn't particularly keen on apologetics. And so... Uh, I started a partnership with Biola University in Southern California, and they just embraced me with open arms and let me run wild starting (laughs) a new graduate program in Christian apologetics on their campus. And uh, it's it's still probably the fastest growing program on that campus. So how long has it been running then, the the apologetics program? Uh, 15 years. 15 years, yeah. And I guess in that time... Have you felt like more and more churches and Christians are looking for defense, reason, defense of the faith? Oh, yes. I I tell my students that uh, this apologetics thing is a growth industry, (laughs) offering reasons for faith, you know, giving people good evidence uh, is is something— that we need to do now more than ever, and churches are recognizing that. That's mm. that's the real key, mm. is they mm. come to us now. We used yeah. to go to them and try to <laughs> persuade them that this would be an important, not not just tool for evangelism and answering tough questions and fulfilling that great uh, command in First Peter to give people reasons, mm. Mm. but uh, also as a uh, as as a way of grounding their own people. Mm. In the faith yeah. and, and discipling them. Mm. I mean, it's very difficult to live big for Jesus <laughs> if you're you're not quite sure if it's all true. Yeah. yeah. You know, sure, I've had an experience, but, you know, is it true in an objective sense? Yeah, you know? yeah, Can I really yeah. go out and study this and discover it to yeah. be true? The answer is yes. And that's the message. So this is a growth industry. Secular culture is encroaching on church territory like never before. And so church leaders are a little bit alarmed. So they're looking mm. for people who have uh, some good reasons and, and good character, too, to learn these things from. Yeah. So tell us about family. Well, I've been married to Karen for 29 years. I have four kids. Uh, I think my oldest daughter is 24 now, my goodness. <laughs> then, a, then a 22-year-old daughter and then 19-year-old twin boys. And uh, both my wife and I, we grew up in non-Christian homes. So uh, sometimes we have to ask our children, so what's it like growing up in a Christian <laughs> home? You know? And I must say, because my wife and I didn't know what we were doing because we hadn't seen we had seen no modeling in our own families you know we just kind of groped you about learning to, on the job yeah, yeah trying to figure it out and and but the lord has blessed that i think uh i think we didn't over religiousize our kids you know mm, sure. i think i think they just love jesus and they understand <laughs> that it's true and 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 that is that's an amazing grounding for yeah. kids to do well in life I mean, when it comes to biola which is stands, as I understand it, for the Bible Institute of Los Angeles. Yes. The, the, but they offer a wide variety of courses and, and things, but all within a kind of Christian framework That's of, right. of the, 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 the campus and so on. Um, is it, we don't really have that here in the UK as such, as sort of what you might call a Christian university um, in that sense. Um, is that a good thing or are there any drawbacks to kind of potentially being in a kind of Christian bubble to some extent. What, what's your experience on that front? Oh, that's such a good question for me because I, I didn't go to any Christian universities. You know, it's all secular training sure. for me. And I, I really enjoyed being the, the the lone Christian on the you know the dark secular campus. <laughs> I don't know, that, that actually brought me closer to the Lord than sure. about anything else yeah, could, you yeah. know. And so I, I enjoyed that. Uh, and and my my experience at Biola was I was running a graduate program, and so it's a little bit removed from the yeah. typical undergraduate mm. days. But but all of my kids, my my two boys just finished their freshman year, and my my girls who are older have gone through and graduated. Sure. And I have come to so appreciate what mm. goes on at a Christian college campus, mm. one that really does it right, okay. one that takes the. Uh, it's not just all, uh, you know, memorizing Bible verses, but you can major in sociology or biochemistry. Mm-hmm. And sure, there's a Christian foundation to it all. And, and there's Christian integration into every mm-hmm. subject. 
Mm. But and so there's there's wonderful learning from top flight thinkers in each of those fields. So there's there's no slacking in terms of uh, what they're going to get vis-a-vis a secular university sure. like UC mm-hmm. Berkeley or someplace. Mm. But more importantly, is this amazing Christian nurture that's going on day to day. Anybody who wants to uh, grow in the Lord, anybody who wants to uh, be passionate about uh, following Jesus and really doing something big for the kingdom has every opportunity in the world at a place like Biola to learn what they sure. need to do yeah. and to see it modeled by just uh, amazing, uh, thoughtful Christian professors. Yeah. Obviously, my main you know, um, way that I've interacted with Biola is through your apologetics program. Yes. And you've got a wonderful range of speakers and authors who, who are involved there. T- tell us, what are you trying to do with the students who come through what 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 kind of are they going away with what kind of a toolbox are you trying to equip them with i guess it depends on what they're hoping to do with it afterwards i guess what, what it it, yeah it, it really does um uh i think we have a first rank curriculum it's, it's general apologetics but we've we've created a curriculum that's so flexible that people can really specialize in what they'd like mm. we have students who are really digging deeply into philosophical apologetics mm. others who are digging into historical apologetics they really want to be able to defend uh, the new testament documents and the mm. resurrection of jesus and so on uh, we do a pretty pretty good job in cultural apologetics you know trying to figure out how uh the big Christian ideas play out through popular culture and mm-hmm. classical culture mm-hmm. and how to make connections with people where yeah. they are. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So would that mean looking at the way films are kind of resonating yes. with certain themes that reflect Christian doctrine and that kind of right. thing? Right. And, and most importantly, this, you know, I really encourage my students to to think more broadly than just learning some uh, philosophy and history but then how to clearly communicate that to people in a way that penetrates, mm. you know, and, 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 and uh, a way that's not using philosophical and historical and academic jargon. Sure. Um, so I actually tried that myself by writing a novel, you know, called <laughs> Five Sacred Crossings. And I got to tell you, um, I am not a professional novelist, so mm-hmm. I really appreciate those who dedicate their lives to such yeah. things because I was a bit of a dabbler in this. Mm. But nonetheless— more people have read that book than anything I've written in terms mm. of, you know, traditional academic work. Yes, sure, sure, yeah. absolutely. And, and and that's where most people are. Most most Christians um, are not probably going to take a sort of in-depth sort of degree in philosophy, but they'll still want to know how to answer their friend across the road right. who says, well, I read this online the other day that, that Jesus doesn't even exist, yes. you know, and, and what what do i do and so so is there the kind of what what what's what's your program offering to that kind of level at which people want to engage where they can't you know come for a term and do a whole program but but they'd like some good answers to those kinds of typical yeah it, it's, it's funny because when we started the program 15 years ago we said we got to have something for everybody and sure. i think we do we mm. not only have a first rank graduate program that sends people off into uh, teaching positions and and doctoral programs and so on but we have a certificate program and it's based on some lecture series that we had on campus a number of years ago. And it is first rate. I'd, I'd call it, you know, the, well, let's put it this way. Uh, if you do the certificate program through Biola, you will rise to the top 5% <laughs> of religiously literate people in the world. <laughs> now, okay, there's a little catch here. Uh, some people say, wow, that must be some certificate program you have there. I say, well, it's a wonderful certificate program. But the comment is really about the incredibly low level of mm. understanding out in the general public. <laughs> yes. So my message is people don't be afraid to yeah, learn this yeah, stuff. Yeah. Uh, just by even engaging a little bit of study, reading some good books, listening to some good uh, uh, podcasts and, mm. uh, and MP3s mm-hmm. and so on, you will uh, really get a leg up and be able to turn the tables in the conversation. Rather than feeling defensive and not having answers, suddenly you'll be able to very kindly and respectfully ask people some hard yeah. questions about their view of the world. I mean, in my experience, lots of Christians who do get into apologetics get into it because their own faith has been challenged at yes. some level by a friend or colleague or, or, or others. Um, I mean, even as an apolo- you know, <laughs> as, a, as someone who knows this field so well now, Craig, have, have there over the years been any kind of moments when you thought, oh, that's a really good objection. I'm not sure I know the answer to that. Or, or anything that's even made you sort of lay awake at night thinking, oh, I've got to get to the bottom of this, you know, those kinds of issues. 
you know, I kind of wish there had been. I would feel more authentic or something, you know. But, but if you'd had a dark night of the soul at some point, right. but but, but it, 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 do you feel though then in that sense that you kind of you've really seen all the arguments that more or less exist out there? At, yeah, at this I, I got to tell you, one thing that really uh, helped seal the deal for me over the long run was doing uh, graduate work in religious studies and and having an opportunity to really study Buddhism. You know, oh, for instance, mm. and and Islam and and Mormonism and you name mm. and and I I gotta agree with Peter uh, his his little answer to Jesus in John chapter six. You know, Jesus is saying some really hard stuff. You know, you gotta eat my flesh and you gotta drink my blood, <laughs> and nobody's understanding what he's talking about, and people are walking away. And Peter goes, oh, Jesus wheels around to the twelve, and he says, "Are you gonna leave too?" And mm. Peter goes, "You know, uh, well, where else are we gonna go?" <laughs> You, know? you have the words of eternal yeah. life. Yeah. And you know what he's saying there? He's saying, uh, I've heard those other guys who've come through town. <laughs> you know, if it were in my life, it was the Buddha, sure. you know, and Joseph Smith yeah. and yeah. so on. And, and they didn't hold a candle to what Jesus has to offer. So although I don't think I have all the answers in the world, I've, I've kind of looked at the answers <laughs> offered by the other great <laughs> contenders for my religious attention, and they just don't add up. They don't yeah. stack up. Yeah. I mean, you, obviously, you've spent years looking at the rational case for faith, for Christ. How does that work when it comes to going back to that first experience you had, which was what first drew you into Christianity? Do you still look for an experience of Christ as well in, as kind of understanding Christ with your brain? Bring it on, God, man. <laughs> Give me all the experience you have for me. I want it all. I want to be shaking in a puddle on the floor. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I he's he's a personal God. He interacts with us personally, mm. and I he he doesn't do that with me often. I'm not wired like that. My wife is. She senses right. those kinds of things yeah. all the time. But yeah. but the few times it has, they have been like uh, great points of remembrance for me. That he's mm. a personal God who can uh, not only. Uh, uh, satisfy my mind but can touch me personally and deeply mm. and mm. i oh i say bring it on <laughs> because i think that's always the danger isn't it that we can focus on one thing to the neglect of the other that's right and, and if we make apologetics our end goal you know we maybe lose the fact that this is right. actually about bringing people close to a to a personal god yes and and i do run a graduate program that attracts people who have a very rational sure. approach to yeah. Uh, the faith and and we spend a good deal of time trying to uh, moderate that. You know, yeah. we we have uh, classes in spiritual formation and discipleship mm-hmm. that that uh, we we want to we want to emphasize uh, the part of the great apostolic command in First Peter three fifteen that says to do these things, offering offer your answers with with respect and humility and reverence. We we want to make sure our students do that. Yeah. Otherwise, they're simply. Uh, a gong or a clanging cymbal and yeah. nobody's really paying attention Absolutely. it's been wonderful to talk with you today craig thank you very much oh, for my joining great pleasure me on the program and don't forget you can find more interviews with leading christians in all areas of life arts politics sport media at christianity magazine visit the website get yourself a free copy of the magazine until next time have a good week